Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Manisha. I'm yes, very excited. <laughs> it is it is exciting. Claire, are you excited? I'm very excited, Chris. Go I feel like I feel like Big Kev over here. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Sorry, that was a reference for um, people in the early two thousands. Guys dead now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that um, that, that news update, Claire. <laughs> All right. Yes, it is. It is lost in science, uh, where we talk about uh, science, science and other things. Apparently. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and my name is Chris, and today I'm going to be talking. Well, I think we can have a couple of multi-part stories starting on this episode because I'm actually doing going to be talking about some dietary sort of science research news you may have heard in the news, oh. and I'm going to be a bit of a thing about how what you should do when you hear these stories, and and how you can sort science fact from science not so fact. Um, you, that's an easy way to say that. Yeah, it is. Are you science be not so fact. <laughs> You're really just going to be like promoting the juice diet or something like that. No, I'm not going to be doing that. Are you um, sure? I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> certain. Yeah. I'm pretty certain that's not what I'm going to be doing. Um, no. So t- for today's, um, there was a report a few weeks ago about um, whether potatoes are bad for you or not and um, yeah so I'm going to be looking at that Mm. study as kind of a a case study in how you should treat these reports and take them seriously or not as the case may be. What Um, about um, I mean my tendency to turn a blind eye to anything um, that says that potatoes are bad. Um, yeah. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Have we'll, a personal bias we'll discuss these those aspects. You don't of it. trust it. You don't trust these stories. Well, I'm um, I'm actually talking to Lisa Bailey in Adelaide. She's um, cool. yeah. So she runs um, Cinema, which is the International Film Festival, and it is going to be cool. Yeah, it's going to be big. They had 1,300 entrants Jeez. this year. Yeah, so and international science films. International science films. Yeah, they have nice shorts, they have documentaries, they have full length feature films, everything like that. Wow. Um, experimental. Yeah, and she's going to be telling me a little bit about it. Walk it in, and they are simultaneously going to be playing the um, program around Australia on the 18th of June. So, um, yeah, in most capital cities, get along to cinema if you love your science and you love your film. Mm. Okay, but you'll hear about more of that. that, And presumably that same words again in a few minutes. But before then, um, Manisha, what are you going to be talking about today? Today I have a story about bats again. I love bats. They're the best. But today my story is actually about the uh, lesser long-nosed bat as opposed to the lesser long-eared bat that I've spoken about before, if anybody remembers. These bats are from Central and North America and they're just really cool. Okay, cool bats. Not like the pink ones in your roof, but cool bats regardless. Um, Well then, on with the show. Okay, so we are on Lost in Science talking about... Potatoes, Claire. Potatoes, fry them, boil them, stick them in a stew. Thank you very much. Cheers. Um, 
And it's Claire's favourite little That's quote from favorite, Lord of the Rings. favourite quote from Lord of the Rings. Okay, so what this is about, as I said in the introduction, this is about when you see these reports in the news or hear about them, about um, some sort of food is good for you or bad for you. Dark chocolate, red wine. Those kind of things. <laughs> Bacon. <laughs> yeah. God. Do you take them seriously? How do you pass P-A-R-S-E, this information. Because this is one of the things I think that a lot of people have a problem with because it kind of, in some ways, cheapens science reporting a little bit. Especially when people, you know, are just reading the headlines. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, what, what it does is that it basically gives people the impression that science is always fluctuating mm-hmm. between different opinions and you just pick and choose whatever you yep. want to believe. Like, yeah. it's some sort of, like it's some sort of religion where you just choose what you're going to believe. And <laughs> science shouldn't work that way. So we're going to look at how, what, what you can actually do. And I'm going to use this as a particular case study because a lot of people are interested in it because people are interested in potatoes. Okay. So, look, I'm going to go through some points to, to be mindful of um, when you hear these kind of things. So this is... Um, as I said, this was in the news a few weeks ago. I think May 17th it came out. It was based on a study that was published in the British Medical Journal that was called Potato Intake and Incidence of Hypertension Results from Three Prospective U.S. Cohort Studies. And it was a study, uh, or as the news report said, that tried to say that eating potatoes will give you high blood pressure. So this, of course, led to a lot of news reports saying eating potatoes is bad for you, and then also the predictable backlash news report saying, no, potatoes are good for you. We don't believe that. So we're going to go through, like I said, some of the points. The first point I would say is whenever you hear these kind of studies, just be sceptical in general. Okay, yeah. I think it's going to be the main point here. Be critical. Um, yeah, critical thing, but just generally be sceptical. It's very rarely that there's going to be completely change of view of diets from one single study. And certainly if it's a single study on a single food. What's interesting is that this um, same issue of the, the British Medical Journal, they had an editorial published as well, which essentially one of its main points was that focusing on a single food is, is not the way to go for these kind of health recommendations. It's really it's about the overall eating pattern rather mm-hmm. than saying a single food stuff is good or bad. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the bigger picture. But I guess generally, yeah, one study, don't overturn everything that you think yeah, just be very sceptical when you hear things. Generally, don't believe them, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Not that they're necessarily wrong. I'm just saying approach it with a sceptical viewpoint. Don't assume that it's going to be right just because it's in the in the newspaper. Okay, so that was one of my first things. Now we'll go dig a bit deeper into the actual study. And this one is actually fairly good because a few of the, the reports, as I said, they said it was published in the British Medical Journal. Some of them gave the name of the study or gave links to it. it turns out the whole study was available for all free text online, which is makes it a lot easier. But even then, even if you just read the abstract or this kind of stuff, you get a fair bit of information. And that's what you should always do is go and look at the actual study and try and judge the actual study itself. If you have access to it. Well, as I said... You have access to the abstract regardless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it helps to read the whole study if you can, yeah. But even just looking at the actual abstract Abstract. and what it says. So one of the first things is... This type of study, it was um, what's called a prospective cohort study. That's actually in the title. You may need to look up what that means. Yeah, I have no clue. What it, what essentially means is a prospective cohort study is where you get uh, a cohort, which is like groups of people, and you try to study a particular outcome before they have it. So in this case, well, this was based on three actual large scale studies that were started. One of them started in the 1970s, one of them started in the 1990s, one in the 1980s, and they were about following populations of people and looking at and giving follow-up every four years. And so in this one, what they looked at is the prospective aspect. For it. They looked at the subset from those populations that didn't have high blood pressure and then looked to see whether they developed or not based on their diet. So 
Basically, there were thousands of people involved in the studies, but they didn't set this up initially to test whether potatoes give you high blood pressure. What's happened is these scientists now have gone back and looked at all this data and tried to extract this information from the data, which is a legitimate way of doing it because it's very hard to do this another way. No one's going to do a big, long, multi-year study just That's to see it. whether no, potatoes give you yeah. high blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. So you do have to do it in this way, but it means that it's it, they're a bit weaker, these kind of studies, because yeah. they're not initially setting up to test a definite thing, you're basically going yeah, back and mining the data. Testing. Yeah, so that makes it a bit weaker from the start. Again, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but just Plus, means... you don't you have take control it. groups or anything like that. Yeah, people it, you've who... got to be a lot more cautious. You've got to do yeah. a lot of statistical jiggery-pokery to try and extract hmm. meaning from it. So that is one thing to be to be worried with this. There's also the fact when you get these kind of studies on diet, which are based particularly over multiple years, we're essentially going to be asking people to say, what did you eat for the last four years? <laughs> and recall that it has been shown to not be great. In fact, this study itself, we actually read the paper. It, they try to say, oh, it's pretty good what people remember. They reckon that the correlation between – studies examine the correlation between what people can remember eating and what they actually ate, and it's about between – 0.55 to 0.69, the correlation of reality to what people say they can recall. So to me, that doesn't sound like that's great. You know, no, that's 50% not a. Of the thing, yeah, or 60% essentially, yeah. Of the thing you can so the actual accuracy of it is already, I guess, in question from that. Did they do any sort of. Sorry, I'm not sure if you read it thoroughly, but did they do any sort of diet analyses? Like, did they have to bring a, a food diary or anything like that? Uh, no, they just asked them to recall how often did you eat these things. Oh, that's and that's so the, really and that's comparing it to a food diary. So when they say this correlation stuff, that's comparing, asking them what to recall what they ate to actually keeping a diary for a week or that sort of thing. Yeah, so that that's that's another thing. But I guess the big one really is then we're going to dig even deeper when you look at the what the actual study found, and this is the things about the actual statistical significance of what they found. Essentially, they looked at different kinds of potato consumption. They found that if you ate baked, boiled, or mashed potatoes, you're 11% more likely to get high, develop high blood pressure. If you ate French fries, you were 17% more likely to get high blood pressure. 17? 17. And if you ate potato chips like crisps, you were 3% less likely to get high blood pressure. <laughs> however, however, the point thing is, the, the, the important thing here is the actual confidence interval, like we'll see the level of uncertainty and they give the confidence interval these as well like so the first one where it says 11 percent likely to that range between between being four percent less likely to have blood high blood pressure so negative four and 28 percent more likely to so essentially that's a null result basically yeah so it's reported in the news huge huge it is but it's reported in the news as this gives you high blood pressure but yeah. it's actually a null result and similarly with the um potato chips being protective against high blood pressure, that's also a null result because that overlaps by quite a large margin as well. The um, French fries um, one looks like it's statistically significant, but just because the other ones were kind of dodgy, it already throws it into question because this is like 95% confidence interval they use. There's still sort of a chance that it's it's by it's mm. random anyway. So that's another kind of thing where a lot of the results have been reported essentially are null results and not real anyway. But how did they report this? So I'm still having issues with this because did they say, oh, yeah, in the last four years I once ate a bag of potato chips? Or are they saying like, oh, yeah, I have potato chips every day? They ask you how often you eat these things. Would you eat potatoes like four times a week? Would you eat them once a week or once a month or this kind of stuff? Yeah, it's no, it's not. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's not. It's not usually accurate. The other thing that's interesting is what they found is there are differences between in men and women in the studies. 
this with with the proviso that there were three studies that they pulled the results from. Two of the studies were done on women. One of the study was done on men. So they're actually separate studies and they got separate results. Mm. So that's kind of an also a bit of a, a strange thing. But they found that men were less likely to develop high blood pressure from potatoes than women. And in fact, the strong effect was the, the potato chips being protective was much stronger in men than it was in women. Now, when they try to then start speculating on what the possible reason the potatoes um, cause problems... It's all about you know, glycemic load and this kind of stuff, which doesn't really see why there would be a gender difference. So that's kind of a spurious thing. When you have these unexplained gender differences, that's another sort of question mark, why these different populations would have different results. It suggests it's possibly just a statistical anomaly. And when they try to also explain why the potato crisps would be protective, they suggest that it could be because maybe they're fried in polyunsaturated oils, which then suggests, well, maybe it's just the whole thing is about the fat that's used mm. in, in it. And even though they try to correct for fat, the only way they're doing that is by asking people to recall what fat they had with their potatoes. So there's a whole lot of reasons why once you start to dig into the methods, it starts to sound, well, you know, it's not going to be um, very likely. So, yeah, and this also wasn't a strong trend in, like, increasing amounts of potatoes with increasing amounts of high, of high blood pressure either. So the trends weren't strong either. So if there's all these reasons... I don't think this is a great example that you should rush out and change your advice on potatoes. Now, one of the reasons they did this, they claimed, is because people were trying to say that potatoes will actually reduce high blood pressure because they have potassium in them. So on that ground, this study is worthwhile because it's saying, well, you know, potatoes certainly don't seem to reduce high blood pressure. So that's not a good argument for doing it. But I don't think it's a thing that you can necessarily conclude from this that potatoes are going to be good for you. And some really good learnings to take when you're reading any other Yep. News article. Mm-hmm. Yep. But this brings me to my final point that I want to emphasize, and this is for you oh, yeah. in particular, Claire. Oh, really? Great. Um, I said you've got to be skeptical of these studies. Also be skeptical of yourself. And if your gut reaction to a study that potatoes are bad for you is to say, I like potatoes, I don't believe it, that's when you've got to really question. <laughs> look at these objective measures. You know, Look at the statistical significance. Look at the methods and those sort of stuff. But yeah, don't just decide based on your own preconceptions. What um, if I say... I like potatoes and I don't care if they're bad for me. That's uh, that's a value that's judgment. Not, that's um, not, and that's that's fine. And that's okay. That's not but, relevant. Yeah, just, <laughs> that's, that's not relevant yeah, to the, the fact that you don't care that it's bad for you doesn't yeah. mean that anybody yeah. can make any gross yeah. health. All right. Statements. I will just stick <laughs> yeah. on, on that ground. Be, be skeptical yeah. of your, yourself as well. But yeah. yeah, certainly look at these these other objective factors and I hope we've given you a bit of a guide on that. Good one. This year, audiences around Australia will have the chance to see some science on the big screen at Cinema International Film Festival, spelt S-C-I-N-E-M-A. I have on the phone with me Lisa Bailey from Australia's Science Channel, who are presenting Cinema this year. Welcome to Lost in Science, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, Lisa, what is Cinema all about? So Cinema is an international science film festival that's happening here with Australia Science Channel for the first time this year, but it's actually been running in Australia since about 2000. Um, So a Mm. couple of guys, Chris and Damien, originally from CSIRO, um, set it up. And it's been running ever since then. And I think it's the biggest science film festival in the Southern Hemisphere. It's not the only science film festival in the world, but it's certainly the only one in Australia and the biggest one in the Southern Hemisphere that we know of. And so when is it happening? When is cinema happening and and where? 
Yep, so the, there's uh, screenings happening all around the country on Saturday the 18th of June. So you can head to our website uh, and I can give you the details for that later if you like. Yeah, or... absolutely. And we can put it on our, on our website as well. Cool. Yeah, so people can go there and book tickets. There's venues in each capital city except Darwin. Sorry, Darwin, you're Sorry, not included Darwin. this year. Um, but everywhere else uh, you can come along. And Saturday evening screenings and the program will run for about two and a half hours and we've got a whole bunch of different types of films um, covering lots of different types of science, lots of... Um, there's a bit of biology, there's a bit of, uh, you know, how gadgets are going to affect our lives, there's a little bit about Australian nature, some beautiful animals that have been discovered here in Australia and a really interesting documentary on vaccination. What, what has been your particular highlight from the program? Uh, yeah, there's a couple. There was a lot of films that we had to get through. We started out with about um, 1,357, I think, was the final total films submitted. Oh, my goodness. And um, you had to watch them all? The, yeah, just it was, it was incredible. Like, they've come from all over the, over the world, basically, over 80 countries, submitted films. And over a series of several weeks, actually, we, um, there was a small team of us in the office that narrowed them down. Uh, and then we had our final selection jury meet at the beginning of um, this month to make the final selections and narrow it down to the final six winners. Um, and there's some additional finalists that we're also showcasing in the, in the national screening program. I think one of my favourites, there's a beautiful short film that won the award for best experimental film, which came out of a filmmaker from Poland and she has actually used time-lapse photography to look at how plants move and sort of oh, wow. all of this, this secret life of plants that we never see at the time scale that we, you know, that our eyes observe plants. But when you speed it up, they really do move and uh, quite a lot. And, uh, and she kind of juxtaposes this with a, a ballet dancer who's kind of, you know, in following along with similar movements and it's really beautiful and it's just this totally hidden hidden world of plants that we never get to see um, really beautifully shown on screen. It sort of sounds a little bit like a less threatening day the Triffids. Yes yeah not quite as scary. Um, so yeah I really like that one and, and it's something that you don't think of you know we've been really broad in, in what we like to see as a science film it doesn't have to be uh, you know it's not all factual documentaries there are there are documentaries in the program as well but it's not all just factual documentaries there's some lovely little short animations some um, fictional stories and things like that as well so yeah and um, the winners have been notified as well so they have indeed so they all know that they've won um, it'll be the first screenings in Australia for several of the films and yeah we're really excited to be able to showcase them and is the 18th of June the only time people will will be able to see the films so the national premiere screenings are on the Saturday 18th of June, but then if you're not near a capital city or can't get there on the night, there will be the chance for uh, people to host their own cinema screenings during National Science Week. So um, if you go to the cinema website, you'll be able to register your venue, and your venue can be anything. It can be, you know, it can be a school class. It can be some sort of, you know, a library. It can be some sort of community group or, you know, even if you've just got a whole bunch of friends together and you decide you're going to you know, run a cinema screening in your house on Saturday night, you can do that. Um, register your venue and then we will uh, give you a password to be able to access a playlist during National Science Week where you'll be able to see the best of cinema films. And National Science Week is happening around the middle of August, isn't it? Yes. So it takes place from the 13th to the 21st, I think, this year. But, you know, if it's anything like 
uh, National Science Week here in South Australia, it tends to kind of bleed over into most yep. of August. So yeah, um, but that will be that, that's a really good way that uh, organisations all around the country can get involved in National Science Week in a really kind of easy way um, by hosting their own cinema screening. So we'd love to see them happening everywhere. I've actually already had inquiries from someone who runs an Antarctic base station who oh, wants to host a cinema screening. That's which, amazing. Yeah, which is really really cool. So I have to. There's there's a bit of um you know technical things to to make happen to be able to screen a film in Tasmania uh, in um, Antarctica because it has to go through their IT department in Tasmania and send it down via satellite and all that kind of stuff. So, wow, I almost um, wonder whether it would be easy just to send a hard drive down. Yeah, well, maybe. Although I guess it's not that easy to physically get there either. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> there isn't a there isn't a mail maybe via albatross or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that'll be really, really cool. So I think that will be the first time there's been a cinema screening in Antarctica this year. That is totally cool. And Lisa, why is it important to run a specifically science-based film festival? Yeah, well, here at Australia Science Channel, we love getting people enthusiastic and interested and engaged in in stories about science. And one of the ways that we like to do that is by kind of putting science in places where you might not normally see it or in arts festivals or using music or film or art to kind of engage people in in science stories. So whilst I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are already into science that would like to come see a science film festival, it also hopefully appeals to people that just like going and seeing films and might see different types of film festivals and this one happens to be a science one and so that's a way that you can reach kind of those new audiences so that's one of the reasons that we do this and also we just really love seeing beautiful science on screen. Absolutely. Lisa, I can't wait till the 18th of June and I'm also looking forward to hearing about how the film festival goes in Antarctica. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to see pictures. I want to see pictures of penguins watching. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dream. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science. Great. Thanks for having me. So the lesser long-nosed bat, this is the uh, feature species of my story today. What's uh, the species name? Oh, Lord of mercy, I don't know. Who? <laughs> it has a really long... Pump. Please. I actually, I don't even have it written down because I looked at it and I said, no way in heck will I be able to pronounce that. It has a Y and a Z in it and it has P's and I's. Like like a real English word. <laughs> like <laughs> a real yeah. Latin word. Yeah. I really don't have it. If you want to pull it up right now. Yeah, please. yeah. Look, no, I think... I think um, you- Listeners, you can find out for yourself and then use it in Scrabble, I reckon, will be the recommendation there. Jeez, it's, yeah. When you're playing Latin Scrabble. Or oh, you tell people it's a bat. It's fine. Oh. It'll be in the dictionary. Contentious Scrabble rules, Chris. <laughs> oh, let's play, Very contentious. Let's play science Scrabble. You can only use scientific terms and species names. That is Jesus awesome. Christ, yeah, okay. just, but you have to have, like, triple the tiles. Rattus. Rattus. <laughs> well, you can't put a space in there. You can only have one radius. But how about the how about like the period, like the R dot radius? Ooh, R dot. Well, how you can do a dot in the well so in you just science pretend. Scrabble? You get dots. Yeah, and you get like 30, 30 tiles at a time because you need it. Because like, you need it. Like twenty else? X's. <laughs> I know. And how else will you get fifty the million Y's and the S's? This needs work. Anyway, anyway, this this, this bat. Anyways, okay, so the lesser long-nosed bat, scientific name for you all to find out, is a species of bat found in Central and North America. It's listed as vulnerable under the IUCN. 
And these bats are really super cool. They're really interesting. And one of the reasons that they're really super cool is not just because I love bats and I want to cuddle all of them. And they can fly. Yeah, only mammal that flies, done. That's that's it. That's, that's all, it. That's all that that's it needs. That's all they need. But yeah, this, these guys are really, really important pollinators in their environment. As some of you might know, bats are incredibly important pollinators in general. So all bats. Um, in fact, even... Like, so, so like they did the job that bees do, do they? Yeah, basically. So the same way that bees will share the pollen across... Uh, so when everyone complains plants. when the bats go to a fig tree and they eat, eat all the fig, eat all the figs and then crap all over the cars. Yeah. So what we I was, should be thanking because those bats are going to back to their to their hive and making yep. bat honey out of figs. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how yeah. good works. science, Chris. Do, do bats make science. honey? No, bats oh, okay. do not make honey. They just make. Guano, right, and that's fun. Don't um, put, honey equals don't, guano. Don't put guano on your toast, <laughs> folks. Well, like honey's like bee vomit, so really, like, hey. <laughs> but anyways, back to the bat. So what I was gonna say is that when the bats are eating the figs and pooing everywhere, you shouldn't be mad because much of our Australian landscape has been molded by bats because the bats really. Um, populated and then disperse seeds everywhere and then we have all this lovely landscape so yeah love the bats love the bats go bats okay anyways back to the lesser long-nosed bats that was just general about bats in general lesser long-nosed bat is a nectivore and a frugivore which means that they feed on nectar and they feed on fruits Mm -hmm. and in fact they can actually consume 1.5 times their body weight in nectar in a single night which isn't much because they're small Hey, isn't is but by comparison? So you, you said one point five times their body weight. So how do they fly? They don't they consume? Because they're fat. Right. They're, they roll. They don't. They don't actually fly. Like by the end of the night, you just see them rolling around. Their tummy's like scraping the ground as they're trying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, that, they can't that fly at the end lie. of the night. That is a lie, everyone. That oh. is not true. So they can fly. They can fly. Okay. They can fly quite happily. Thank you. The lesser long-nosed bat, it's known to range across Central America, and their southern extent of their range is down in the southern parts of Mexico and into Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And the northern part of their range is up towards Arizona and New Mexico in the United States in the Sonoran Desert. So in the winters, they roost down in Mexico, and in the summers, the females actually migrate across the Sonoran to Arizona or around Arizona to their maternity roosts and then they give birth there. To make this journey, the bats time the migration with the flowering of the cacti in the desert. So as I mentioned before, they can consume 1.5 times their body weight in nectar. So for a mass migration like this, not only are they traveling in massive numbers, but they're also commuting thousands of kilometers across the desert. In a mass migration like this, it's really, really important to have a reliable food source. So the cactus is really important for the bat for it to for it to have a food source, and then in turn the bats pollinate the flowers, which is essential for the persistence of the cactus. The cactus that the bats have adapted to consuming are really cool. They f- only flower at night, which oh. might mm, which might seem a bit is different. that because the bats are nocturnal. So it's a bit of, it's a, like kind of this co-evolutionary thing. It, there's a few things going on there. So these cactus that flower at night are called night-blooming cereus. And the adaptation to flower at night 
is thought to be to deal with the harsh environment of the yeah. of the desert. It's hot and it's dry in the desert. So if they flower during the day, they run the risk of losing too much water. But also, like now with this research, it's showing that they also time it with this migration or the migration is timed for when the, um, the cactus is blooming so that the bats can then get their food. The other phenomenal thing about the cacti in the Sonoran, so it's not just one species, but a range of them, but they only flower one night in the entire year. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. They wow. only, so for one night, um, usually on a full moon, the cactus flowers and provides nectar for the bats, and it's in the same one night that the bats then migrate that section of the forest or of the, geez, of the desert. So basically, it happens in this sort of sequential way. So in the different zones, the cacti start to flower, and it makes this nectar path or a nectar corridor for the bats to get up to Arizona and find their maternity roosts. That's so cool. That's like I don't know, like petrol stations along the way for the for the bats to. Yeah, exactly. Duck in and get a little bit of a, a feed. feed before yeah. they go on their migratory way. Yeah, and once the bats have had their feed and they pollinate the flower, the plant dies. So before oh. <laughs> yeah, before before the sun even rises, the plant will wilt and basically the flower will then protect the pollinated seeds and keep those seeds from from drying out. So really retain all that moisture and the plant in itself will then continue to consume the sun or the sun's energy. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. Yeah. So now if the timing and intricacy of of that wasn't amazing enough, there's more to the story. As I mentioned, the bats migrate across the Sonoran to their maternity roost in the summer, but in the winter, they need to make their journey back. So they make the journey again back down to Mexico, and this time they're accompanied by all of their brand new pups. So not only is this a massive journey spanning thousands of kilometers again, but it's also now so you have twice as many. Exactly. Now you have twice as many um, individuals making the trip. So how are they getting their food and fuel for this trip? Yeah, the return journey. Did they leave anything for the return journey? No. Well, the, because the all the cactus dead are dead. Anyways. Exactly. But now, by this point, these same plants um, that they pollinated on the way up to Mexico have produced fruit, and it's oh. the fruit. Yeah. So the the pups and the um, the mother bats are consuming the, f- the fruit uh, on their way home. Isn't that really cool? That is very amazing. Um, the bats are so dependent um, on the cactus but or the different cacti species, but due to climate change and weather conditions, the cacti have actually been declining. The populations have, um, have been declining, and they are also flowering later in the season. So this is resulting in a later departure by the bats to their maternity roosts. These sorts of... Relationships, I reckon, are pretty important to acknowledge or understand when considering conservation efforts because in Mm. this case, the lesser long-nosed bat is considered vulnerable and not endangered, but its main food resource for making a really important journey in its life cycle is is also declining. So it's quite possible that its population decline will really plummet if the cacti species are either, if their flowering goes way too late to allow for the bats to successfully get to the maternity roost or if um, the and if the bats then aren't doing it, then the flower, the cactus not getting pollinated. And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It is. Yeah. So it kind of all connects right back to each other. 
So without them pollinating the cactus once a year, the cacti are also likely to be lost, which will have then a spiraling impact on the ecosystem since a variety of other animals, things are animals such as birds or even bees and moths and lizards or mice, they also use the plant either for shelter or maybe they use it for food as well. And then we would just hit this massive deficit for all of these species involved in the ecosystem in general. So understanding these intricate, well-balanced relationships are very important in understanding conservation and management. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost, lost in Science! science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.